Hey, you're listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. I'm the author of the fantasy novel, Gemma Calverson and the Forest of Despair, which I read in its entirety, one to two chapters per episode on this podcast. This episode will cover chapters 17 and 18. Today, Trouble catches up with Gemma and Richard. Then, we learn more about the mysterious man that had been following Danny and Arnhem around in their last few chapters. This probably won't make any sense to you if you haven't heard the earlier chapters, so I encourage you to go back and listen to those first. I'll be here waiting for you when you're ready. I'm so grateful that you've joined us on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please leave a positive review at your favorite podcast app or website. And share about the show with your friends and on social media. Thank you for helping get the word out about the Machete and Quill podcast. I would love to connect with you all on social media. You can go to ryanhoytauthor.com and find links to my Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram profiles. Also, please consider purchasing the book on ebook, paperback, or hardcover. That's the best way to support my endeavors and keep this going. At the time of recording, the book is available in Kindle Unlimited. The ebook is on Amazon. The paperback and hardcover editions can be purchased anywhere books are sold online. You can also get signed copies from my website, ryanhoytauthor.com. There's also a prequel novella called The Witch of Ferrothon that's out there, and a sequel novel called The Isle of Abandonment is due out in summer of 2023. I have an unrelated gothic horror novel called Raven Tree Hollow that's also available on Kindle Unlimited, Kindle eBook, paperback from any online bookstores, or signed copies on my website. Now, let's get into the episode. These are chapters 17 and 18 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. Keep in mind, I'm narrating the book for the podcast, but this is not as clean as a professional paid audiobook. You'll probably hear a couple awkward pauses or my dog making all kinds of noises. There was an airplane flying over and over and over around my neighborhood, so I had to stop for a long time. Anyways, that said, I hope you really enjoy this story. Stay tuned after the chapter for a behind-the-scenes discussion about the story. Thanks for listening. Gemma Calbertson and the Forest of Despair, Book One of the Epistel Chronicles by Ryan Hoyt, Chapter Seventeen. Two long days passed without event for Gemma and Richard after they left the abandoned camp. The more tired Gemma felt during their long and silent hike through the forest, the more she tried to focus on the fact that the adventure brought a new spark of life to her companion. When she had first seen Richard just a few days earlier, he'd been an exhausted, hunched old man much like her father had been for as long as Gemma could remember. But now Richard was standing tall, walking without that crooked gait. His eyes looked more alert, more full of life. He didn't seem to fear their situation as she did. He looked very much like the hero she'd grown up reading about in Just Stand the Just's Journey of Perils book. Gemma, on the other hand, was terrified by the very trees that surrounded them. She still couldn't shake the feeling of being watched, even though they hadn't heard a single footstep animal call, or even the buzz of a fly. Other than the trees that were dark as death, there was no other living creature to be found anywhere. They had not found any tracks that led toward or away from the ransacked camp that they had stumbled upon. The sun was rising on their fourth day since escaping the tunnels, and Gemma had questions. Richard, those tunnels we used to escape your house, where did those come from? Richard looked up from the sack of dried fruits and nuts that he was picking through for breakfast. As far as I know, the tunnel system is part of a series of mines from hundreds of years back, Richard said. There was an ancient tribe, the Hathdrak, that resided in the riverlands where my farm is. I learned about the Hathdrak in school, Gemma said proudly. 
I studied epistel history at Capital University. The older history books say they mostly wiped themselves out when a group ritual went wrong. But most of those books have been destroyed by the committee. That's partially right, I suppose. They mined a mineral from the rock at the edge of the forest for centuries, then ground it into a fine powder and inhaled it. It seemed to put them into some kind of trance where they could talk to the spirits. I don't know if it was their gods or maybe their own dead ancestors, but they claimed it helped them gain wisdom and insight into the future. After centuries, they used it all up. They continued to dig tunnels, hoping to find more of that special rock, and they were soon several miles deep into the forest of despair. After so long under the ground, they started hallucinating. The hallucinations came from the natural gases this wretched place emits. Their minds warped. They turned against one another, using their digging tools or their bare hands to slaughter each other. Some fled back to their villages, but the harder they ran, the more of the gases they breathed, and they slaughtered the women and children when they returned. That's when the early Pine Drop settlers stepped in, right? Gemma asked. That's right. Pine Drop was settled by a group of soldiers who fled after a failed uprising against the king of Esteron. They heard the screams from across the river, so they gathered their weapons, crossed over their rafts, and put an end to the rest of the Hathdrak. The story goes that when the soldiers found them, the remaining men were covering themselves in the blood of their own wives in some kind of sick ritual to appease a spirit of the forest that made them do it. So that explains why I was hallucinating that I thought I heard whispers that we were running through those tunnels, Gemma said. It seemed so real, too. If you couldn't tell, it filled me with terror as well, Richard admitted. I know those tunnels were used by smugglers and others over the years, even after what happened to the Hathdrak down there, but I didn't expect there to still be gases that powerful. Somehow, I thought the destruction of the forest 25 years ago may have cleansed it. Or it was the gases that caused the explosion, Gemma proposed again. Richard shot a betrayed look at her. Do you mean you believe Davin's retelling of events? He asked. Well, Gemma began. I know there are some horrendous things that King Davin and the committee have done to cover up so much of the past. As a student of history, it's been a nightmare trying to access old books when so many have confiscated from the libraries. But so much of what I've studied about the old tribes, about the religions around Epistel, even about the years leading up to the war, a lot of it can be explained logically, like how those hallucinatory gases explain why I thought I heard ghosts whispering to me down in those caves. Richard sat in silence. After looking at her, stunned for a few more seconds, he turned away and gazed off into the trees. Finally, he turned back toward her and broke the awkwardness. When were you born? About a year after the war ended. Why? By the time you were old enough to be aware of the world around you, Davin had formed the Royal Mystic Committee. He had his men writing their propaganda. His soldiers were killing helpless ministers and practitioners in the streets, smashing houses of worship to pieces, all for the sake of creating a new generation that would fall easily in line under his rule. Well, I can't help when I was born, Gemma said, but that doesn't mean I'm some mindless wench who can't think for myself. You're right, Richard said. I'm sorry I said it that way, but if you don't believe in what I've experienced, why are you even out here with me? I'm here because it's my assignment, because I want to contribute to documenting our past. Outside of Just Dan's books, there's not much on record about what happened during those dark years. You are one of the most important sources of knowledge, 
And yes, I admit that the official stories from King Davin don't completely add up, nor do just Stan's versions, which were obviously tampered with by the committee. So I truly want to learn more, even to be proven wrong. And I want to return home with your story, whether or not it lines up with everything else. They'll kill me, Richard said bluntly. Once you're done, if I go back to Pine Drop, they'll have what they need to kill me. Hell, those soldiers were already there for me when we fled. I'll give you my story, but they'll force you to change it. And then you'll be in danger too. I won't let anything happen to you, Richard. That man who was with the soldier will stand up for me, and I'll make sure he stands up for you. Walker works for the committee, but he's not a terrible person, I promise. Power makes good people do terrible things, Richard said. He gathered his belongings, secured his pack, and stood up. But thank you. We better move while the day is still young. As much as Richard had appeared to be in his element over the past two days, he was now back to being a slow-moving, aching old man. Gemma felt like she'd deflated what confidence and ego Richard had built back up over the course of their trek. She didn't think they were covering nearly as much distance that day as they had during the past two, and she thought she was to blame for it. It also didn't help that her feet were aching, her thighs were chafing, her stomach felt unfulfilled by the dry snacks they had to call meals. The water skins were less than half full, but she didn't think they'd covered half the distance to their destination yet. Still, she kept on walking. It was easier to keep pace with Richard now, and she even found herself passing him up on occasions. She slowed down any time she thought she was veering off their northerly course, and he would wordlessly take the lead again. As evening closed in, a cold wind blew through the forest. The sun was far off to the west and falling lower behind the trees. They reached a clearing on an incline. They climbed the dirt hill, which seemed naked without the black trees. Gemma felt exposed without the close cover of the trunks and branches. She stopped and turned her head quickly to glance behind her. There was movement in the trees. She was sure of it. Richard, she whispered. He stopped in his tracks and turned. What is it? He asked, but didn't seem alarmed. The wind blew even harder up the crest of the hill. I thought, never mind, just the wind, I guess. She turned forward, shivering from the cold wind, and they continued walking. They descended the hill, and she actually felt some relief to be back under the cover of the forest. After another hour of walking in silence, they stumbled upon a camp. Unlike the previous camp, which had been in tatters, this one contained three canvas tents that looked like they could have been set up that morning. Richard held out a hand, gesturing for Gemma to stop and remain silent. Then he pointed to a carving in a tree to their right. It was the same symbol that had been engraved in those trees surrounding the previous camp. They stood still for a few more seconds, but did not hear any noises. Richard crept toward the center of the camp, wordlessly observing the surroundings. Gemma quietly treaded a few feet away from one of the tents. A woman groaned as she emerged from a tent about 15 feet away from Gemma. Richard was in between her and the woman, but Gemma could still see her. Her hair was orange and wild. Her clothes seemed to be made of brown animal skin. She was filthy from head to toe. She was close to Gemma's height, but she must have weighed 30 pounds less, and Gemma was not heavy by any means. The woman stumbled toward Richard, continuing her groaning sound. She didn't look vengeful. She looked terrified, as if she were running to Richard for help. Gemma got a better look at her open mouth. 
Her tongue had been cut out. The woman extended her hands to Richard, who must have also felt that the woman was not going to attack him, as he did not bother reaching for his sword. She came within three feet of Richard when a thwang sound rang out. The woman fell to the ground. An arrow lodged through her head. She was dead. Gemma didn't hesitate to move. She turned back toward the tent nearest her and dove inside. She pulled the canvas flap closed, lay belly down on the ground, and covered the back of her head with her hands in case any arrows came flying in. Was it a trap? Gemma wondered. She didn't want to hurt us. Maybe she was trying to warn us. She heard the sound of Richard unsheathing his sword. She heard another bowstring snap and an arrow hitting a tree. She heard several pairs of footsteps running toward the group of tents and Richard's heavy steps running to meet them. The unsheathing of more swords, the clash of steel, screams of pain, more clashing steel, more screams, painful grunts, bodies falling to the dirt, and then silence. Not for long, though. She heard a whimper, a person begging for their life to be spared. It was a voice she knew. Walker! Gemma jumped out of the tent as she yelled the name. Walker, what? Gemma broke off in shock. Above them, the sky seemed to have gone nearly dark, filled with black clouds that Gemma didn't remember seeing just minutes before. Her shock grew when she saw Richard. He was standing, his face, arms, and torso covered in blood, though it appeared he had no wounds of his own. He held his imposing sword in his right hand, aiming it down toward Walker, who was lying on his back and whimpering like a battered dog, his own sword a few feet away in the dirt. Sprawled out on the ground around them were soldiers, dead soldiers, nine of them. Richard the Elusive had killed them all. Chapter 18 On the northeastern edge of the town of Pine Drop, wedged between the River of Giants and a long stretch of farms that continued to the foothills of the Estron Mountains, there lay a large building, dark and gloomy as if it were there to scare off any intruders that may be approaching the town from the east. In the light of the sunrise, it cast shadows westward over the outskirts of town, and in the evenings, the shadows dropped over the nearest farm. But throughout the day, the inner rooms of the building were in constant shadow. The windows were boarded up with pieces of old fencing and wooden signs from shops that had long ago gone out of business. Compared to the rest of Pine Drop, this was a dreadful place to be. Some townsfolk said blood still stained the floor. Others swore they could hear screams of the dead coming from the building at night. Children dared their schoolmates to run up to the door and knock, but none ever mustered up the courage to do so, despite the goading of their peers. The entire town agreed, though. The former temple of Selenderon the High was a cursed place. Even before the Royal Mystic Committee's bloody purge of the Order of Priests of Selenderon two decades prior, many in Pine Drop did not go near the place. Since the founding of the town many centuries earlier, Pine Drop's people had largely stayed away from the various religions of the land. The earliest settlers had fled Old Esteron because they had disagreed with the religious customs the king forced on his citizens. Those settlers had also seen the dangers some traditions could bring when they'd witnessed the self-imposed genocide of their nearest neighbors, the Havdrak. Yet when the Selenderon priests arrived, the townsfolk had allowed them to build their great temple out by the farm the order had purchased 
as it was the landowner's right to do so. People were sometimes suspicious of what went on in the temple, but never enough to approach it with pitchforks and torches to destroy the place. A whole host of followers of Salanderon had made pilgrimages to the temple in the better days. They were nice, seemingly ordinary people from other parts of Epistel, and they visited local restaurants and shops, spent good money, contributed to the local economy. So the people had grown more comfortable with the Slenderon, and all was well for several generations. That is, until King Davin's committee came to town. The people didn't think the Slenderon had done anything to deserve what happened, but the law was the law, and the priests had refused to obey it. The temple had stood empty ever since. Until this evening. Marzell of South Plains pushed past the gate that the children of Pine Drop dared not open. His long legs had no problem navigating the weeds that hid the pathway, even though they grew past his waist. The strong evening breeze chilled his hairless scalp, but his face stayed warm under his considerable and well-groomed mustache. Marzell ascended the steps that led to the large iron doors of the massive temple. At the top, he reached down and rubbed off the burrs that had attached themselves to his nice suit. Marzell reached for the handles of the doors, but his hands stopped a few inches away. In the dim light emanating from the moon on that clear but cold evening, he could make out many of the dents in the door from when the Royal Mystic Committee had forced its way in. Chains and locks had been placed on the handles to keep intruders out. He gave a tug, but it did no good. Marzell smiled. He wrapped both hands through the chains, bowed his head, and whispered words of a language not heard out loud in Epistel for quite some time. The wind died down almost instantly. The moon's radiance began to increase, as if there were a full moon instead of the crescent that presently flew high in the clear night sky. The bright light sparked within Marzell's hands. As he continued to grasp the chains on the door, smoke drifted out from between his fingers. The chains glowed a bright, burning red. They pulsed brighter, then shattered into hundreds of shards. The moon faded to its normal brilliance. The battered, hulking doors opened inward. Marzell spoke again. Please accept the gratitude of your humble servant, O generous Salenderon, he said quietly, this time in the common tongue of Epistel. His hands were still glowing, lighting his path as he entered the desecrated house of worship. The smell of rot and decay was strong. He knew the committee had taken the bodies out and burned them after the show of force 20 years ago, but rats had called this place home ever since, and who knew what else? He reached his hands out toward a wall and saw that it was covered in black mold. Weeds were growing out of holes in the floor, and he carefully stepped around those to avoid falling and breaking his ankle. Marzell walked into the cavernous sanctuary. The wooden pews had been tossed all around by the committee when they'd conducted their raid, and nobody had been back in to clean it up. He carefully made his way toward the altar, climbing over pews and stepping around holy books that were strewn all over the floor. Up on the dais, Marzell found the charred remains of what he could only guess was the ever-giving sun, which had once adorned the wall the worshippers faced. It represented the great lord Selenderon, and the committee had ripped it off the wall and set it ablaze. Mournfully, Marzell turned to the side of the dais, where a rotted curtain hung. 
His right hand dimmed and cooled as he reached for the fabric so as to not set it on fire. He pulled the curtain aside and walked down the hall that led to the residential quarters for the priests that had once served in the temple. His hand returned to its former brilliance to illuminate his way past doorway after doorway. At the end of the hall, he found himself at the foot of a staircase. He climbed. As he ascended the stairs, he couldn't help but sweat from the heat trapped in the upper floors. The heat his own hands generated didn't affect him for reasons that could only be explained by the Order's sacred text, the Illuminarion, but natural heat bothered him in his fine suit. Fortunately, the heat began to fade as he reached the highest point of the staircase and was met by a cool breeze. These windows weren't barricaded with wood scraps. The panes had been shattered by inclement weather over the years or by stones thrown by the locals. But even if the windows had been fully intact and the temple had been in regular use by those of the Solender on Faith, they would have been left open up here anyway. They would have been open for the sake of the birds. Marzel clicked his tongue when he reached the top step. Hello, little friends, he said. The glow from his hands pulsated momentarily as Marzel listened to the sounds of the birds. He looked around the upper chamber of the Temple of Selenderon and smiled with joy at the hundreds of pigeons all looking his way and cooing wildly. Marzel shushed them, then began reciting an old incantation in that ancient tongue. The birds sat in silence, tilting their heads toward the tall, mustachioed man. It was as if they understood every word he was saying, even though nearly no man or woman in Epistel would have been able to decipher them. Then he switched back to the common tongue as the birds remained in their silent trance. The great and merciful Lord Selenderon has granted me success on this part of my quest. It is my honor to report that events are in motion. The dreamer and the loyal one have reached the Black Forest. The protector and the inquisitive one are already closing in on Ferrothon, where they will meet an agent of darkness. The committee and the military will pursue them and Capital City will be vulnerable. Let it begin. For a moment it was silent. Then the birds seemed to snap out of their trance. They cooed all at once, then rushed toward the open windows. Out they flew into the night. Some headed east, some west, some south. Let it begin, Marzel repeated with an accomplished, confident tone as he watched the birds fade into the distance. So, this week we continued on in Gemma and Richard's journey in the forest. Earlier in the book, there's talk about how the Royal Mystic Committee changed the official story about the flash fire in the Forest of Despair that killed thousands of soldiers in the blink of an eye. That fire was the work of a dark sorcery, but admitting that, of course, goes against the laws of the kingdom. So this story about toxic gases going up in flames was used instead because they couldn't just completely ignore the fact that thousands of soldiers died like that. Well, it turns out that there is at least some precedent for those gases, and those gases were also apparently the cause of the paranoia that Gemma and Richard experienced when they ran through the tunnels and thought they were being chased. I really enjoyed writing about this dark and brutal history of these lands long before the modern era in Epistel, where this poor tribe falls victim to the gases in those tunnels, and essentially, pummel their entire entire tribe out of existence. It was super gruesome. After that, we got the chapter with Marzel, the priest of Selenderon. 
In case it wasn't clear, he's the bald guy with a too fancy suit and the super funky twirly mustache that Denny noticed watching him at the train station in Plenamore Valley. And again, the next day in Pine Drop. He totally should have uh, made himself look a little less conspicuous if he didn't want to stand out. Anyway, I enjoyed writing this scene because it felt kind of like a gothic horror short story uh, with this church that had been totally ransacked and now is fodder for local legends as a haunted and abandoned place. And then there are those birds. In some of the middle drafts of the story, after I replaced the opening chapter a couple times, there was a version of the library chapter that now opens the book that was extended a little bit. In that one, the birds don't kill the woman from the Royal Mystic Committee inside the fifth floor of the library. Instead, she gets outside as she's chasing Gemma and trying to get that scroll from her. But a different Solenderon priest stops her in the street and attacks her with a flock of these pigeons. That scene was rewritten a few times and that part was removed, but now we get to see Marzell in this chapter talking to birds, as if they're able to carry some kind of verbal message out to other people around the kingdom. This scene also brings up a question of whether Gemma is the stereotypical chosen one. I kind of get annoyed sometimes with the chosen one tropes, and I was actively trying not to use it in this book, at least up until this point. <laughs> even uh, I even start off the entire book with the line, it wasn't as if Gemma Calvertson were some sort of chosen one foretold by the prophets. But then in this scene, Marzell seems to have these preformed titles, not only for Gemma, but also for Richard, Denny, and Arnhem. The inquisitive one, the protector, the dreamer, and the loyal one. So I won't tell you here if these really are some uh, archetypes for some Solenderon prophecy. You may have to read the second and third books in the series that will be coming out next year, hopefully the year after that, uh, in order to formulate an opinion on that, because things aren't going to go the way you or Marzell may expect. Next time we'll find out if Richard lets Gemma's ex-boyfriend Walker live after his attack with his soldiers as we head into chapter 19 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you can buy the book wherever uh, books are sold online, including signed copies at ryanhoytauthor.com or read it on Kindle Unlimited. Connect with me on social media and uh, which you can find the links to at ryanhoytauthor.com. You could find my TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, profiles on there. The music you're hearing on this podcast is from Before the World Moved On, which is a music side project of mine from a few years back. The track at the beginning is called The Warble. The track you hear now is called The Gunslinger. Thank you for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. We'll continue our journey together through the forest of despair on the next episode. Take care. <laughs>